Now let's turn to our Bibles. And we're going to be looking at First um, Peter chapter 5 from verses 1 to 5. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Thank you. First Peter chapter 5, 1 to 5. Okay? Therefore, I urge elders among you, as your fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and one who is also a fellow partaker of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not with greed, but with eagerness, nor yet as domineering over those assigned to your care, but by proving to be examples to the flock. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And you younger men, likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Father, we are thankful for your word. We ask that the meditations of our heart and the words from my lips would be acceptable to you this afternoon. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So we've been going through First Peter for the past year and a half, I think it is. And today, as we have been for the past few weeks, we're going to be considering the topic of eldership. Because Peter takes some time to speak to the elders, the office of elders. So elders, pastors... Bishop, they're synonymous, right? So the overseers of God's flock, of the church. And we saw last week the three undeniable axioms or self-evident truths. The first is that the elder must always have before him the primacy of the cross, the primacy of the cross. The message of the gospel must be front and center in the teaching and in his life. The gospel is his focus, the message of the cross. So when Paul writes these words, these are the words that must always ring true for the elder because otherwise we can go on tangents and we can become involved in so many other aspects of Christianity, but it's not gospel-centered. There are denominations that will say, our focus is to be mission-minded. Well, you could be mission-minded like the um, Seventh-day Adventists or the Mormons, and yet not gospel-centered, right? The gospel is not heard amongst the Mormons. So Paul makes very clear this truth with the Corinthians, and it's a truth that the elder must always have before him. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was his main focus, with the Corinthians. Now, you know the Corinthians were given to gifts, and they uh, were into manifestations, and, and, God, and Paul does say that these gifts did come from the Lord. But when he came in their midst, Paul would bring them to the cross, to the cross. The cross was central for Paul. The second thing the elder we saw last week, the elder must 
always keep in mind, the possessor of the flock. I'm trying to keep it in letter with P, right? The primacy of the cross, the possessor of the flock. So the elder does not own the flock. The pastor does not own the flock. As I said last week, there are many pastors that say, my church, my people, my members. This is a language that doesn't belong to an elder. doesn't belong to a pastor. Um, Paul writing, or rather speaking, rather, first of all, to the uh, elders of Ephesus says these words. We find them in Acts chapter 20, in verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And he's telling them, the flock doesn't belong to you. You are overseers. You watch. You have oversight to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased. Again, he reiterates it. God purchased the flock. How? With his own blood. By the way, for those of you who want to see where Christ is God, there it says clearly, God's own blood. All right, so Jesus Christ purchased the church and made it her own, his own. Three, the primary role of the elders, the other thing that the elder must keep in mind. He is to be an under-shepherd. He is called to lay down his life for the flock, modeling himself after Christ's example. The elder knows that this calling is not for the faint of heart. He knows that there is no prestige, none whatsoever, associated with the call. There are no apostles and prophets, mighty men. We're servants, period. Servants. Please remember this. So if anyone comes across as being all-knowing, he has a word from God, and I've spoken to God yesterday, and I have a special word for you, all this kind of stuff. It's rubbish. He is there to be a servant. He feeds the flock of Christ. And that is his responsibility. The words that Jesus said to Peter immediately after his resurrection always ring true for the elder that carries the burden. Because it is a burden that carries the burden of this call. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And what does Jesus say? Shepherd my sheep. That's how we love the Lord as elders. We shepherd the flock of God. Today we're going to continue with the elders' calling, and we're going to consider what he must guard himself against in his role as an elder with the flock of God. So we know what the calling is. It's to shepherd the flock. And a lot could be said on this, but we're going to be looking at what he must guard himself, so that makes it clear how an elder is to serve. First, he must guard against any possible distraction. Any possible distraction. That's not mentioned in our passage here. I'm adding this, but it's from Scripture, but it's not mentioned here in this passage that we just read. At least not directly. Indirectly it is. In the book of Acts, in chapter 6, we have an incident narrated by Luke. It's regarding a complaint that arose in the early church. The Hellenistic widows, these were the widows that came from the diaspora, in other words, countries surrounding Palestine, right? They were Jews that had uh, immigrated back 
to Judah, Jerusalem in particular. They were living there. And in those days, life was short. Men would die, whether it be in battle, disease. And there were many widows. And the synagogues took care of these women. But the moment they became believers, the synagogue disowned them, believers in Christ. They expelled these widows. Now, these widows had no one to help them. So the church quickly kicked in. And we, found, we find, rather, in reading this passage in Acts 6, that the Hellenistic widows, the widows from the diaspora, were not being treated the same way as the Hebrew widows, the ones from, who were native-born, basically. So imagine, for example, I would go back to Italy. I would be considered one from the a diaspora. I'm not an Italian from Italy. I'm, I was born here, and I'm going back to Italy. And they would treat me differently if I would be looking for a job, right? Because I'm not from there. He doesn't know the language as well. You know, who knows? He may bring in these Canadian ideas and so forth, you know. That's basically the, what happened. And um, the Hellenistic widows who had no voice, really, when you think of it, they were nobody considered, compared to the Hebrew widows, the ones who were native-born, complained. And what we see is the apostles did not ignore this complaint. They didn't dismiss it. They took interest in the complaint, and they knew that if they ignored it, this would wreak havoc in the burgeoning church. And so they took interest in it, and they decided to listen to the Hellenistic widows who had no voice, who were women, who were from the diaspora, paid attention, and then they came up with a resolution. This is what the apostles said in Acts chapter 6 from verses 2 to 4. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. So it, it seems that the apostles were involved in the distribution of the food as well. So they were preaching and they were probably saying, okay, you take it to this widow and you take it to this group in this region, you take it to this, you know, they were overseeing both, basically. So they say, it's not right. We're, we're, we're doing something that we shouldn't be doing. That's what the apostle said. Uh, instead, brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we, notice this, the elders will do this. We will devote ourselves to prayer, and to the ministry of the word. So for the first time, we're introduced to this other group of leaders who were responsible for the distribution of the food in an impartial way between the Hellenistic widows and the Hebrew widows. The decision to have seven men, they're not called deacons, but we're introduced to the concept of deaconship, right, is, in, is brought here for the first time. And this freed, this decision freed the apostles to dedicate themselves to prayer and to the study of the word and then to the exposition or the teaching of God's word. That's what we will dedicate ourselves to. Let these men dedicate themselves to this task. So what we see is they were working hand in hand with the apostles who were the elders. So, 
we have a job description. What we have here is the high calling of elders being defined, being broken down. What does it mean to shepherd the flock? This is what it means. It means that the elder, pastor, whatever you want to call it, okay, they're, saying, they're synonymous, must dedicate themselves first to prayer. The hardest thing to do is pray. Hardest thing. This is not a five-minute prayer. This is an all-day thing. You're constantly praying for the church. And you don't do it because you have to. The elder desires this prayer. It's something that is birthed within him. God gives it to him. God gives him a desire to pray. And as he remembers people, he keeps praying for them. He prays for children. He prays for families. He prays for individuals who are suffering. He prays for those who are weak. He prays for those who are healthy. He prays for the church. The elder loves to pray. He gives himself to prayer. He is not given to other things. Now listen, there are many opportunities to serve in the church. Many. If you feel drawn to any aspect of service in the church, that's a wonderful thing. The elder does not feel drawn to any of those things. The elder does not feel drawn to serving in music, for example. The elder doesn't feel drawn to administration. The elder does not feel drawn. He may be good at administration. He may give a hand, but that's not the elder. The elder is drawn to prayer. The elder is drawn to the word. He spends hours. Because in other words, there's nothing to give. We are here to feed the flock. We're here to instruct so the flock gets strong. I remember I used to take walks, prayer walks. I don't do them as much now. I used to walk and I used to see healthy cedars. You know, I'm drawn to whatever is green. And I would say, Lord, please, I want the church as healthy as these cedars. I want them green. I want them lush. That's the prayer of an elder. The elder has a heart for the health of the church. That's basically the prayer. So they're concerned that the church does not get weak. That they're concerned that the church does not become worldly. The concern is that the church does not become distracted, but that it's focused. That's the prayer of the elder. And there is a passion in that prayer. And you feel it when you meet a, an elder who prays along those lines. He prays that way every time he prays. When he's alone with people, when he's by himself, when he is with his wife, when he's with his children, when he's everywhere he is, he's constantly praying this way. Dedicated to prayer and then to diligent study, which results in expositional, expository rather, preaching or teaching. What is expository teaching? It is when the goal and the uh, intent of the writer becomes the goal and the intent of the speaker. So he doesn't eisegete. He doesn't throw his own personal ideas into the text. He says, this is what God's word says. He draws out. That's what exegesis, exegesis means. And not eisegesis. And I've done a lot of eisegesis. I confess it in the past. I'm much more careful in exegeting Scripture. So what we have here is basically the job description in a nutshell. Devoted to prayer, devoted to the ministry of the Word, which is studying the Word, rightly dividing the Word, taking the Word seriously, and not waffling on difficult issues. 
There are many difficult issues that are thrown at us because the world in which we live is not a, a favorable environment to God's word, as we know. And so the elder stays firm on what God's word says. The elder devotes himself to prayer and to the word of God, not to mingling with people for the sake of being cool and, and looking good and being charming and magnetic. If anybody would come to Christ and is fed because I would be charming and magnetic, no one would be coming to Christ. No one would be fed here because I'm not charming and I'm not magnetic. Elders don't need to be magnetic. Elders don't need to know, uh, to, to be oratories. I'm not an, an orator. I am not. I, I remember the first time I shared God's word, I spoke for five minutes. The second time, five minutes. They called me in and said, can you just make it a little longer in five minutes? Otherwise, we have to have somebody speak after you. I said, brother, I'll try my best. It was always five minutes for years. And then I went to 10 minutes. And then I went to 15. Now some of you are saying, John can't stop speaking. <laughs> but the, you, we exegete from Scripture. And we give God's word to God's people. We're not interested in being liked by God's people. An elder does not want to be in a popularity contest. An elder fears God first and teaches the people of God to fear him as well. He serves God by giving his heart and soul and body to the task of prayer and the study of God's word. For this reason, Paul, writing to Timothy, who he had trained personally, said these words to him when he left him in Ephesus. Pay close attention. Take heed, says the King James. I love that one better. Pay close attention to yourself and to the teaching or to the doctrine. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Pay close attention. What must I pay close attention to? Am I being distracted? Are there other interests? Am I being more concerned about the other aspects of church life? I shouldn't be. My focus is prayer. Prayer. And I have no idea how many times people would tell me, you're the pastor, you're in charge. Then I go back into prayer and God would tell me, no, you're not. No, you're not, John. You're not in charge. And then I go back to meeting with men and says, John, you're in charge. Make sure that they do this and make sure the church does this and make sure. And I go back to prayer and the Lord says, no, John, you're not in charge. You're not. Give them my word. Give them my word. Stay in my presence. Stay here. Pray. Pray and give them my word. That's what I want you to do. Be focused. That's what an elder does. That's what an elder does. And Paul says to Timothy, pay close attention to yourself and to the teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will save, notice, both yourself and those who hear you. A distracted pastor is a pastor that can't feed the flock. He can't instruct. He's got nothing to give. A distracted elder is one who's concerned more into, about politics. Cannot feed the flock. We have enough politics in the world. We don't need it in our midst. Now, there are some aspects of church government that includes politics. I get it. But we have to minimize that. Minimize it to the, right to, down to the ground. And we have to pay a lot of attention to godliness, to righteousness, to holiness, to rejoicing as God's people for the sake of the gospel. 
Um, I've spoken to many who served in the ministry and uh, did not pay close attention to themselves. And they were an example to me. They scared me. Because I would look at them and I would say, Lord, please don't make me become like that. They failed by not taking heed to themselves. They prayed little. They studied even less. You may have heard about the scandal in the SBC, in the Southern Baptist Conference, how the president of the SBC and many other pastors are plagiarizing messages, taking messages word per word, other people's messages, and preaching them. And when asked why would they do this, why would they, and they don't know how to handle this because many pastors are doing this because they say they're too busy. The, the weight of the ministry is basically weighing down on them. Then they need to read Acts chapter 6. Simple. There are other men, gifted men, that can do a lot of good stuff in the church. We have a great board, and they carry out other tasks, and they do a good job. We have gifted people in this church. We don't have to, as elders, waste our time with other aspects of the ministry and neglect prayer and the word. We don't want to neglect that. That's our primary thing. And you, brothers and sisters, are there to remind us of this. If you see any of elder neglecting prayer or the word, you have the responsibility to come up to us and say, what are you doing? Devote yourself to prayer and to the word. I'll be very frank with you. I haven't had one, that kind of rebuke. No one has ever told me that. That just shows you the condition of the church. They want the pastor to be a great manager, a great entertainer. They want elders to be effective in different areas. But no one has ever said to me, no one, except in my early years of ministry, no one has ever said, brother, devote yourself to prayer, to the word. Except these brethren who I serve with right now. I thank God for them. And that's the kind of elders we want to be. The people of God must see in the elder that he spends much time in prayer and the word. That his life is being shaped by his time in the word. And that the issues that he deals with, whether from the pulpit or one-on-one, have, he has struggled written prayer over those issues. He has prayed and he has studied God's word, so then it gives the answer according to the teaching of the word. He doesn't lose, lose focus of his calling. This is why an elder must be able to teach, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verse 2, and 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. It means guarding also against the pitfalls of the ministry. So let's look at some of the pitfalls that Peter mentions here. Let's reread verses 2 and 3. First, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not with greed, but with eagerness, nor yet as domineering over those assigned to your care, but by proving to be examples to the flock. So in verses 2 and 3, Peter is mentioning three specific pitfalls that the elder faces as he carries out his calling as a shepherd. And I have faced these pitfalls. And so I'll be sharing some of my personal experience in dealing with this. First, 
He must serve willingly. Notice, voluntarily. He must exercise oversight not under compulsion, but voluntarily, willingly. So the danger is of serving begrudgingly, of being of not of not being willing to serve. Um, the elders called to give oversight. But the question is, as he gives oversight, does he ever get tired? Yes, <laughs> he does get tired. The elders get tired. And that's why, thank God, we are into the plurality of elders. So that when one gets tired, the others kick in. We need plurality. It's so important. I've had to learn that. So the answer, of course, is the elder is a human who carries the weight of the ministry, and that weight wears him down. We read in the Gospels how Jesus one day makes an unusual request to his disciples. He says in Mark chapter 6, 31 and 32, come away. Notice, Jesus always says, go. Go, the harvest is great. Go. Preach the word. Cast out demons. Heal the sick. Go. Here he says, come. Come away. Why does he say that? Because he notices they're tired. To a secluded place and rest a little while. For there were many people coming and going and they did not even have the time to eat. And they went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. An elder must serve willingly. But there comes a time when he is running on empty. He is tired. He is drained. He gives and gives. He has to learn how to re-energize himself. Now, I wish I was a good example of this. I'm not. I'll be very frank with you. My wife can tell you this. How I would give and give and give and give and give, and I didn't know how to re-energize myself. That's one of the reasons I think I started gardening. The garden would help me detach from ministry. Otherwise, my mind is constantly thinking about the church, the people of God, constantly. I wake up praying. Throughout my day, I pray. I need to detach. And so the garden would help me do that. And I think, I remember going into the garden, and I would say, Lord, forgive me. I just, for two hours, I just totally forgot the church. But I realized only much later that the Lord had given me, by his grace, this gift. And it was my mother-in-law who first told me, why don't you start a little garden over here? That was years ago. And I, you know, I remember Joe Bruno telling me the same thing. And I said, I don't know what, about, much about gardening. But it wasn't because I had to learn about gardening. It's because the garden helped me. An elder needs to know how to pull away. He needs to know how to re-energize. And if he doesn't do this, he runs on empty. He gives and gives and gives and doesn't know how to pace himself and then doesn't pay attention to the warning signs and then he makes serious blunders. Serious blunders. This is what happened to Elijah. Elijah had given himself to the task of serving God's people. You all remember the story? It's found in 1 Kings chapter uh, 19. You can go start at verse eight, chapter 18 if you want, and then 19 and then chapter 20. And he had given himself to serving God's people faithfully. And he expected God's people to repent. Israel had uh, defected from God. There was great apostasy. And then through his uh, prayers and, and through the... Uh, drought for three and a half years. The skies had not rained. God's people were brought 
at a time when Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal. And in that challenge, of course, fire came down from heaven because Elijah prayed and God's people repented and said, the Lord, Yahweh, he is God. And Elijah expected the whole nation to turn around. But they didn't turn around. An evil queen was ruling with Ahab, a puppet king. And uh, one simple threat from Jezebel, that's the queen, made him run away. He was discouraged, tired. It was just a total meltdown. I mean, this man killed over 400 false prophets. This man challenged the prophets of Baal. This man prayed that the heavens would stop raining, prayed again, and the heavens gave rain. And Jezebel just says, you're a dead man. He just takes off. He took off. The results from his hard work were unsatisfactory for Elijah. He expected more. He expected greater repentance. He expected the people of God to follow God, to be earnest. He said that wasn't happening. The ministry proved to be disappointing, and Elijah lost his desire to continue. So this can happen with an elder. It can. I remember there were times I felt that way. I was too afraid to leave. I was. I never said I would leave the ministry. My wife knows that. But I did think of leaving LCF at times because it was just some things were just, I couldn't handle them properly. I didn't know what to do. I was alone. I felt alone. I wasn't alone. People were praying for me. You were praying for me, those of you who were there. But I felt it. I felt the weight coming down on me. So the elder needs to be aware of the pitfalls of the ministry. And so he needs to take proper precautions. He needs to surround himself with the people who will be honest with him. Sometimes I needed to be here. John, rest. John, take a break. John, pull back. Other times I needed to be rebuked. And I thank God for my wife especially, who God used many times to minister to me. Elijah succumbed to burnout, not only because he was intense. He was very intense. Just read about his life. Anybody who dressed like Elijah was intense and expected specific results in Israel, but also because he was a loner. Elijah served alone. When he spoke with God, he goes, I'm the only one. You know how many times I've said those words to the Lord? <laughs> I'm the only one. I don't get it. And God told Elijah, no, you're not. There are 7,000 that haven't bowed before Baal. Please, Elijah, you're not the only one. But Elijah needed something else. He needed a companion. A companion that would help him. And never again, after Elisha, his companion, comes into the story, into the picture, and serves alongside Elijah. Never again does Elijah go through a meltdown. And uh, I am really grateful to God for the way the church has um, been blessed with the ministry of Andrew, and now other men are being trained. Thank God for the woman who served faithfully over the years, but now men are rising up to being elders, and, and it's all happening in the last few, few years, and God has been blessing LCF because of that. And, I, and uh, we need to keep in mind that sometimes elders can get tired, and they can come to a point where they're serving on, and running on empty. That's not a good thing. And for this reason, we have plurality of elders. One, 
We need to be honest with each other. Two, we need to be praying for those in leadership because the enemy does bring in discouragement. And I thank God for the prayer warriors of this church. And four, elders need wives that support them. I cannot stress that enough. My wife was instrumental throughout my ministry. Without the wife that I had, I would never have endured the way I have endured. So, and good friends that are willing to tell you the truth. That's the first pitfall. The second pitfall is serving with avarice. Uh, Verse 2 again says, and not with greed, but with eagerness. No one should expect to get rich from being an elder or a pastor. No one. I can tell you stories of how difficult it's been over the years um, financially. I never shared my difficulties. This is the first time I am. I never shared with you that we struggled financially many, many times. I never shared even with my children. Um, We just kept it to ourselves. We prayed. And over and over, the Lord would provide in different ways. The prosperity gospel teachers will tell you that faith will move mountains. Of course, they take that whole passage out of context. And you can get whatever you need and whatever you want and the prosperity and the success you need for your family, you can get it with your faith. Thankfully, I was never fooled by that message. Never, ever. Either my wife or I. We struggled because the Lord brought in those struggles in our lives. I do not regret one struggle One financial struggle. I don't regret it. In those times that I went through them, I did regret. I said, Lord, I don't understand. I'm serving you. Can you at least (laughs) provide? I'm having, I have bills here. I I just don't know what to do. But now as I look back, I thank God for every one of those struggles. You ask my wife, she'll tell you the same thing. God kept providing over and over in ways that we could never even imagine. Not too long ago, I spoke to the elders of the board, and I said, brothers, please don't raise my salary. There's no need, really. Just, there's no need. And they said, brother, no. This is what the guidelines of the CMA are, and this is what we're going to be doing, both with you and Andrew. This is what is required. And, and I very, I'll be very frank with you. There was a time when I would have appreciated that increase. And now I just say, well, okay, brothers, listen. I can't convince you because I can't overrule them on anything, by the way. When they say no, it's a no. And, and so I said, fine. And I let it be. But believe you me, that has not been the case for many, many years. But how the Lord took care of us? He did. You serve the Lord. You're diligent in studying God's word and prayer and in feeding the flock. The Lord will take care of you. I felt many times, Lord, I'm doing something wrong. If you're not providing, why am I struggling like this? I'm doing your work. And I, was, and I would at times question myself. But as elders, we need to just, if the God's people are telling us that they're being fed, then we should just continue feeding the flock and never complain. Never let them know that the financial difficulty is there. Because God will provide for his servants. He always does. He has for us. Now, there were times I even considered opening up a business on the side. That I did. I never considered leaving the ministry. Never. I was too afraid of that. I knew I had to give an account to the Lord. But I did consider opening a business on the side because I would go to Italy and see pastors who had businesses. 
of course, they started in business, and then they became pastors, and so they kept the business, and so they were running both of them in tandem. I don't know how they do it, but they did it. And so I would talk to my wife, maybe I should start a business on the side, and, you know. But verses like this would discourage me from doing it while serving God's people. Verses found in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, suffer hardship. So John, suffer hardship. Elders, suffer hardship. That's part of the ministry. Part of the ministry. This morning, Josh went to speak at a church, Hosanna, and, uh, and uh, he's here at church. Why? Because part of the ministry is serving, sometimes skipping lunch, and being at another place of worship. That's what elders do. Elders serve. Elders lay down their lives and suffer hardship. So he says to Timothy, who Paul was in prison at this point. Timothy wasn't. He goes, Timothy, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he could please the one who enlisted him. Now, there are bivocational elders. In fact, most elders are bivocational. What does that mean? That they have a job, but they de- their desire for the flock, their love for the flock is great, and they sacrifice for the flock. We have such men and there are other men being trained this way, that desire is being nurtured. But then there are those who are in full-time ministry, like Andrew, like me, who are supported by the willingness and the generosity of God's people. And some people are, some elders rather, are bivocational. In fact, I would say the the majority are. And then there's some who are in full-time ministry like myself. And God's word says that God's servant is not to be muzzled. In other words, he should be supported by the church. This is all over scripture. I'm not going to go into that. And sadly, there are many pastors, because they feel they're not, they're not getting enough, that they fail the test. They fail it. Look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. This is a, an important passage that I've had to read to myself over and over, especially when I felt I didn't, I wasn't, that we weren't m- making ends meet. Hebrews 13, verse 5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. So when I read a passage like this, I put my name in in that passage. John, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. I always do that with Scripture. Especially uh, passages that are direct this way. Being content with what you have. So I would quickly ask forgiveness. I say, Lord, grant me contentment. Grant me contentment. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever abandon you. So an elder needs to remind himself of this over and over. Otherwise, greed creeps in in a very secret, in a very mysterious way. It takes over. And you start wanting things, and you want this car, and you want this house, and you want, and you want, you want more and more. It's dangerous. That's why Peter says, do not let avarice, don't let be content with what you have. You need to be happy as pastors 
with the way the Lord provides and for the tests that come with that calling. I've met pastors who have abandoned the ministry altogether because they didn't, weren't making enough. They just abandoned it. They were so discouraged, they just left the ministry. And then I've met pastors who've done the diabolical thing of using the ministry to make money. That is totally diabolical. These charlatans, and that's what they are, follow the example of Balaam and have run after money. Because they believe that the pastor should be successful, prosper, he should, prosperous. He should be, come across as though he has it all together. There should be no difficulty that he, should not over, that he should have in his life. He should overcome everything, especially financial woes. Prosperity gospel is nothing but a Ponzi scheme. The only one who is rich there is the pastor himself, nobody else. Everybody else in the church is poor. A country where prosperity gospel is very much embraced is Africa. Thousands attend these churches. And there's a pastor driving a Royals Royce and it's parked outside. And he's telling everybody, just as God has blessed me, he wants to bless you. And people believe it. And they give their money. How sad. So the first, he must guard himself from serving begrudgingly. The elder must serve willingly. Secondly, he must guard himself from serving with avarice, greed. He must serve with contentment, accepting the tests, accepting sometimes that the salary may be less or that he may be struggling financially, but God will take care of him if he continues the work. And third, he must guard himself from serving with an iron fist, nor yet as domineering over those assigned to your care but by proving to be examples to the flock. This is a big problem today in the ministry. Big problem. Too many pastors are uh, domineering. I know that left to myself, I can be a domineering person. I can be controlling because I want things done a certain way. I've had to ask God forgiveness over and over on that point. Many times I said, Lord, deliver me from the need to be right. Deliver me from the need to be first Deliver me from the need to be controlling. That has often been my prayer. Privately, I pray that. Over and over. And now you know about it. Why? Because it's in our DNA to control. We want things done a certain way. We want people to behave a certain way. Anything that doesn't look good on us, we want it changed. How strange that our chief shepherd is not like that, eh? How wonderful that he's not domineering. A pastor is not a CEO. He is not. And the elder board is not a corporate board. They are called to handle all things diligently, but never with a heavy hand. The elder is a servant. He urges, he pleads, only in those areas where he sees that something is not in line with God's word. And he doesn't go beyond that. If he's asked an opinion, it's an opinion, period. You have every right to say no to my opinions. Every right. It's an opinion, for goodness sake. But when God's word has spoken, and we agree that that's what it says, then we have to there be firm. But that's it. That's where the elder 
has authority. He says, this is what God's word says to you and to me. Too many pastors have resorted to intimidation when things are not done their way. Why? Because it's part of our human nature. An elder or a pastor must put to death the desire to manipulate, the desire to control, the desire to be self-serving every single day. Every day, he brings himself to the Lord and he says, Lord, today, deliver me from being self-serving. Deliver me from being controlling. Deliver me from being manipulative. manipulative. Deliver me. I am a servant. This is the sad truth of many religious organizations. And many people have been hurt in churches. The place where people seek refuge. The place where people come to be encouraged. To receive God's word. So they can leave refreshed. The place that where they should hear the voice of the Lord as the word is being spoken, in the songs that are being sung, and in the prayers that are being offered, the very, that very place becomes a place where people get wounded. That should never be. That should never be. Religious leaders all too often lose the sight of the truth that as elders were nothing but shepherds. And as I told you last week, shepherds had no prestige. They smelled, they were often illiterate oftentimes, and people didn't want to hang around with them. What is a servant? This is how Paul often would call himself. Listen to these. I'm going to read one verse for lack of time. Titus 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God. That's it. What's a bondservant? Doulos in Greek. It means he is at the disposal of the Lord. He has no rights. He has no rights. Whatever he desires is secondary. Whatever God desires is first. I'm a doulos. I'm a bond servant. I've laid down my life for him. That's why Paul would call himself a prisoner of Jesus Christ, not a prisoner of Rome. So if I'm going through financial difficulty, I am a doulos. I am going through financial difficulty because the Lord so wills it for me. I'm, in, I'm his, and God wants me to go through financial difficulty. Everything Paul saw, he saw himself, everything Paul lived rather, he saw himself in the light of the fact that he was a doulos, a bond servant. That's what an elder is in the church. He serves. He lays down his life. He is not there to give orders. He's not there to command. He's not there to control. He's not there to manipulate. He's not there to tell people what to wear, how to speak, who to date. That is not an elder. That is not an elder. Not according to God's word. Jesus was the ultimate doulos. The ultimate. Remember when they came to him and said, Lord, please tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Is who made me? A judge over you. That's not where I'm here. <laughs> I'm not here for that. I'll tell you the truth. I've fallen for those traps many times. Because a pastor wants to please. A pastor feels, okay, I'm a servant, so if they ask me to intervene, I've got to go. No, you don't. No, you don't. Not every time. That's why plurality of elders is so important. I've been in cases where I've, had, I've intervened, I've sat down in a situation, and then after I've left the situation, 
I thought, I said to myself, why did I go to this meeting? Why was I there? They wanted me to be like an arbitrator, like a referee. I'm not a referee. That's what they wanted Jesus to do. I'm a shepherd. Elders are shepherds, under shepherds, bond servants. How could pastors or elders exercise leadership in any other way than the model that Jesus gave us? The church is not ours. People of God do not belong to us. We have to kill the domineering, controlling, manipulative, self-serving spirit. I've heard pastors quote Hebrews 11, chapter uh, chapter 11, verse 7, over and over to me, where it says, Obey your leaders. And submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they may do so with joy, not groaning, for this would be unhelpful for you. And they've quoted this to me, pastors. They've said, you see, John, they have to obey. They've said this over and over again. John, the church has to obey you. That's what it says. And I would go home and say, there's something wrong with that interpretation. Again, eyes of Jesus. Where does the church obey the leaders? As far as the leaders echo the will of God. Period. Anything beyond is overreaching. It's overreaching. And the pastor, the elder, can fall into that trap of overreaching. He has to be checked when that happens. Someone has to go to him and say, brother, you are overreaching. Board of elders, you are overreaching. We are only to be obeyed when it comes to God's word. When we explain God's word and we teach it, that's where the church has to obey. Because they're obeying their Lord. Not obeying us. Because we have to give an account. So we have to be careful in exegeting and expositing scripture. Recently, I made a suggestion to the brethren of the board, and they did not agree with me, and they overruled me, and they did well in doing so, because not everything I say is right. It was an opinion. It was a, an idea I shared with them, and they didn't agree with me. We have men who are wise, who are gifted, who are filled with the Spirit. They fear God. They love the Lord, and they can overrule me. And we have this camaraderie amongst us so that we keep each other in check and pray one for another and love each other. There's no place in the church of Christ for an iron-fisted pastor, a controlling elder, a manipulative elder, or a manipulative pastor. We are doulos. We are bondservants. We have no authority but the authority that God has given us in regards to teaching his word and instructing the people from God's uh, word. And these are the pitfalls that we must guard ourselves against as elders. And a teachable spirit is key here. I've often quoted the words of David when he said, Lord, let the righteous strike me. It will be like ointment on my head. He's saying basically, if someone rebukes me, someone corrects me, I will receive it. I will treat it like perfume. I'll treat it like cologne. We all take cologne gladly unless, of course, you're allergic Right? We spray, our, spray some perfume or aftershave or whatever it is. And we do it because we like the scent. What David is saying, 
when a brother strikes me, when he corrects me, when he rebukes me, I will not detest it. I will not take the brother and push him out of my life. I will welcome the rebuke. I'll treat it like perfume. I'll treat it like cologne. An elder must be an example of this. He must be the first to say, I was wrong. The first. He must be the first to own up his, his mistakes and the first to humble himself before the church. That's the elder. Because he shows by example what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Not, I'm right and you're wrong. We're right, we're the elders, and you have to do what we tell you to do. No. The elder will learn, will teach rather by his example, and the church will learn from the humility of the elder, and that will motivate the church to follow Christ. And then that example is repeated in the home. Otherwise, dads will have no authority in the home because they come in manipulative, domineering, controlling, self-serving. That's how men are men. And for men in church, we pass that on to other men. Christ was the ultimate man. He was the quintessential man. He still is, by the way, in heaven, the quintessential man. And he showed us from his example what it means to serve the flock to lay down our lives for the sake of Christ. When speaking about Timothy, this is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. I want you to pay close attention, then we'll close with this passage. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. So Paul was not able to be with the Philippians. He goes, I'm hoping that I can send this other servant so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. He goes, he really cares about you. He's concerned about you. For they all, who's they? Who's he speaking about? Well, he's not speaking about non-believers. He's speaking about other servants, other pastors and elders. That's what he's speaking about. Think about it. This is what he says. They all seek after their own interests. Interesting, isn't it? Even in the days of Paul, elders were seeking after their own interests. Pastors were seeking after their own interests. But he says, not of those of Christ, but you know of his proven character. So an elder proves over and over that he lays down his life for the flock, that he loves the flock that he's praying for the flock. You have to see this in the men. If you're not convinced of this, when the time comes for you to recognize these men, just hold off. But if you see this in their lives, not because they're perfect, not because they don't make mistakes, that's not the issue. The issue is you can see that they have a calling of God in their lives. They have a shepherd's heart. Paul says, you know his proven character. He's a shepherd. He cares about the flock. You know his proven character. He has served. Notice, he has served. He's a bondservant. Doulos. With me, how? In the furtherance of the gospel. Not his own agenda. He's like, like a child serving his father. I remember when my son was younger, much younger as a child, whatever I would ask him, he simply does. 
That's what Paul says Timothy was. Whatever Paul would ask Timothy to do, he would simply do it for the sake of the church. He has served with me. He is a doulos. I'm a doulos. We are doulosses. We serve. We're bond servants. We give our lives for the flock. That's an elder. And I've ended the series on eldership. <laughs> we'll continue with 1 Peter chapter 5 we'll, from verse 6 next week. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the eagerness from your people in learning and growing in grace, their desire to walk in your ways. For those who are here with us and have not made a decision to become a child of God because the whole thing is scary, yet they decided to come. Who placed that desire in their heart if not you? And so we simply pray that you would draw them closer and closer to Christ, that they would come to know who Jesus is, and for your church, that you would uh, continue to make this flock strong in your ways. Love, uh, loving your word and loving righteousness and godliness and holiness and just simply rejoicing in who they are as God's people. Thank you for the privilege of sharing with your flock that which you have placed in my heart. Thank you, O oh Lord. We are really honored to be your people. We look forward to seeing our chief shepherd. We look forward to dining with him, to rejoicing in his presence, to seeing the wounds in his hands, how he gave up everything for us so we could become his people, his bride. Lord, what an honor, what a privilege. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would in our midst men that will continue to serve the flock and prepare her as the bride for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.